What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is the Ringer's latest narrative podcast. Episodes one and two launch on June 9th, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Welcome to the Ringer NBA show. It's the answer. I am Chris Ryan. I am joined, as always, by Sirit Soyi. What's up, Sirit? As always. How lovely that is to hear. Well, sometimes I'm not here. You're always here, though. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is uh, pretty straightforward. Sirit and Rob Mahoney are going to talk about the Clippers-Mavericks game, which I do not know the result of because it hasn't happened yet. Neither does Sirit. But they're going to do a little bit of a chat about that game. And then Sirit and I are going to come back and we're going to talk to you about the young players taking over this postseason. All right, guys, we're talking to you after a historic Kawhi Leonard game. 45 points, six rebounds, three assists, two steals, 18 for 25, five three-pointers, a bunch of daggers at the end. Uh, that, that feels like the place to start with me. Obviously, the Clippers won. We're going to have a Game 7 on Sunday at the Staples Center. Um, first Game 7. First game seven in Luka Doncic's career. I think that's going to be pretty interesting. But let's start with Kawhi. Rob, what is the number one rule of feature writing? Oh, I don't know. Is there Are there rules? Oh, that that's why you write the way you do. Shit. Show, don't tell. Uh, th- oh, that rule. <laughs> yeah. Show, don't tell. Look, like but this, didn't you this just, is didn't like Didn't you just tell time. his whole stat line? I guess I did. I guess I did. Um, well, if you pull this up, you know, if we put this up on video, perhaps you and I could. <laughs> well, there's charades. Actually, it was like a kind of robotic uh, game. Like it actually probably wouldn't be that hard to imitate, you know, without the basketball and the defenders and the need to you know, be accurate. And, all the context, you know. All the tough stuff, all the basketball parts of it. Um, yeah, Rob, what did you what did you think of this game? I mean, I think the Mavs are are really going to kick themselves over this one because they made it manageable enough to win, which is kind of all their defense especially needs to do. And then in the end, it's just Kawhi throwing haymaker after haymaker after haymaker, you know, basically defeating everything that you fought so hard for to keep this game close. And in the end, you know, we've seen previous games, Luka Doncic have incredible fourth quarters, great shot making from him over long stretches. This one, it tilted toward Kawhi. And that's the way it goes when you have a dude who honestly, can get to his spots whenever he wants. It's just a matter of, is he going to make those shots? Can you get like kind of a hand in his face? But he's too strong. He's too good. He's going to have games like this. Have you seen him play like this since he's been a Clipper? I thought this was probably his most focused game as a Clipper. And some of that had to do with the way the first half went too. 
which there's kind of this weird balance with the Clippers right now between trying to work around this Mavs zone and make the right basketball plays, which sometimes mean like working the ball to, to Marcus Morris, who's going to dribble to the free throw line and just kind of stop and try to make reads. And the offense gets a little stagnant, a little weird, maybe a little overly patient sometimes. And if you're Kawhi and Paul George, you also need to pick spots where you're just going to push and you're going to be more assertive and you're going to look for your stuff. And I thought this was the game where Kawhi walked that line most effectively. I thought his passing was really good in the half court, especially in the first half, especially when he's stationary. You know, like he, can, he can read a defense from those contexts. And then when they needed him to hit shots, he was right there to deliver pretty much every time. Yeah, that's such a good point about the rest of the guys not really knowing exactly what to do all the time with the Clippers. And I think that's exactly why you need those guys to do what they did today, especially Kawhi. Like, this performance, getting a chance to cover him and, like, be around him day to day in in Toronto, one of the most interesting parts of it was just the fact that, like, he just brought this level of calm to to everything, you know, whether it was off the court or obviously on the court. I mean, we know what that team looked like in the playoffs. They really figured some stuff out when Kawhi was on the floor. But he really, like, he gave them the confidence of knowing that they had the best player. And that's what tonight felt like. Like, he was just forcing himself into certain locations. He was really using his strength. Um in an economical way that like where I think we're really we've become accustomed to seeing from Kawhi, but for some reason hadn't been seeing in this series like this was vintage. This is like this is why he's been a finals MVP. He's not as athletic anymore as he was with the Spurs. But this is you know, this is why he was able to basically do everything he's done to this franchise to get <laughs> in order for them to procure his talents like this is him paying that off and saying like yeah I am him like I'm gonna make these crazy shots over Luka Doncic I'm gonna save our season and I think it started like pretty much in the first quarter like he was really aggressive and man you got to give the Clippers credit they weren't hitting shots things were looking really bad for them early the Mavericks started missing but there was a point where it kind of felt like they were ready to explode and it never really came, which is good for, for the Clippers because they were able to hold on. But like, man, like you just I, the, he's getting in there for, for rebounds. He's playing. What do you think of what, what did you think of the defense on Luka? Well, first, let's circle back to Kawhi for a second. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question for you in that, you know, the calm you described that he can give an organization, which is such a like and to his team on the floor specifically, is such a huge part of his appeal as a player. I would not say the Clippers, generally speaking, have a calm energy about them. This is kind of a constantly frazzled team. Mm-hmm. Um, they have kind of like that that mindset where you're walking around in the world all day and you're not sure if you left the oven on at mm-hmm. your house. They, it's like there's something going on in the back of their mind at all times. It's just gnawing general, at them. Yeah. <laughs> just your general vibe. But yeah. do, you th- do you think the calm that Kawhi gave them in this game is translatable? Like, do you think that is a thing that we're going to be talking about for the rest of their playoff run? Like, this is a potential turning point for that. Um, You know, I think I think if anything, first of all, they got to win game seven. Um, Kind of important. Yeah. No, just like if we're talking about the whole playoff run, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here because I think like ultimately, you know, whatever team shoots the lights out kind of tends to win this game. You know, Zach Cram wrote a great article at TheRinger.com. Just the first time I've said that sentence um, <laughs> about how home court advantage hasn't really mattered. And I think three point shooting is a big part of that. Like teams have just never felt streakier. Uh, and and this is this is kind of what the series has been. So to me, it really comes down to that. But to your question, like, I think I think it starts with Kawhi. I think if he continues to have he's not going to have these like crazy 45 performance, 45 point performances all the time. But he has them in his bag. And that's important. Um, I think as long as he comes out and he remind, like there's something to the reminder of just like being, having a couple of those moments every game, just so the guys around can look and remember, be like, oh yeah, we got that guy. He can do that <laughs> thing. Um, I think that helps. And he just needs to keep doing that. Like, I don't think, I think that was kind of the mistake they made earlier on this series. Like I, I felt like they thought that they could just walk through it. Like there weren't a lot of adjustments, a lot of really late adjustments by Ty Lu, which have ended up being the right ones. Obviously, number one thing that we have to talk about is, is, is the 10 minutes that Luke Kennard played. <laughs> <laughs> he scored, ha- no. he scored half their bench points. That's true. That's true. Um, but yeah, Re- Reggie Jackson is, has, brought them a lot of energy it also just just made shots like a lot of that is just like he just made shots um which is big for them they really need that 
Rondo had a classic Rondo game. Um, one point six. How, how do we convey an eye roll on this podcast? <laughs> okay, no. So putting Morris in the starting lineup and then just making sure that Zubak never plays with uh, with Luca was yeah was pretty huge. I think this Clippers team is now at a place where they have made the right adjustments, and and Game Seven is probably just going to come down to to make a rest league. Um, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean this game. You know, Paul George had kind of a weird game, and Paul George has those sometimes where he makes some really boneheaded mistakes, but also is, you know, clearly one of the most talented players on the floor, can do things that no one else can. And I think he was kind of bailed out a little bit in this game by Reggie Jackson having a super hot first quarter. Because when one Clippers player can go off like that or have even have like a 20 point game in total, didn't have to be all contained in the first quarter as Jackson's basically was, it lets you get away with Paul George being a little more a little more come and go, a little more sinusoidal in his performance. Like it, he doesn't have to be as sinusoidal. Steady. Yeah, that's that's a free one for you. Versus, Thank you know, you. Kawhi is more like more metronomic, maybe if we're kind of comparing here. Uh, so to get that kind of consistency from even one other rotation player, one other rotation player as more of a steady scoring presence who can hit some damn shots, that gives George a lot of leeway in a way that he hasn't had in every game in this series because the role players haven't always been there. But Jackson's hitting. He certainly wants to take those shots, and credit to him, he's he's giving them something they really need offensively right now. Yeah, Paul Paul George had an interesting game. I think he came out really aggressive. Um, he tried to attack Luca in the zone a couple times, and the first time he just kind of crashed into him. He wanted a foul, didn't get it. Didn't really look like a foul to me. Um, second time, same thing happens. Not a foul this time, but I think what was it, a turnover or a missed shot? Um, but, you know, not a, not a positive result. Uh, and then they start kind of, they start working the zone a little bit better. They move Paul to wherever there's like two, wherever there's two people. And then Luca is kind of in a tough spot. He was aggressive. And I think they could, did a good job of, of finding places that he could be aggressive. He didn't hit a lot of shots. He passed the ball straight into Luca's hands once. <laughs> we kind of got the full George, full Paul George experience. But I, I, I like the playmaking. Um, and I like the aggressiveness, and I think if that can continue, I mean that that this is this is what the Clippers should look like, right? Like maxim maximize the guys that can do a little bit of what you lack. Like I think that's the logic behind getting Kennard in there too, and you know, like you should. They're probably the more talented team. Like, do you think there's do you think there's anything more that they can do to get Paul George going or just get him to? have a consistent game. I mean, they've been they've been fighting that battle in different stages all year. And so a lot of it came down to having the ball in his hands a lot where he could be more of a distributor, more of a facilitator, more of a point for them. That wasn't really working in this series in the same way uh, for a, a variety of reasons, which we can get into if you want. But I don't know that there's an easy way to access his game in a dial it up, let me funnel a bunch of shots this guy's way Let's get kind into of it. function. I mean, I think when you when you have Paul George as your point guard in the regular season, that can work pretty well. Most teams are not prepared for that. Most teams don't have the wing personnel to deal with that, to deal with a facilitator like him, creating from the top of the floor, doing a lot of passing. It's a trickier thing to handle versus in the playoffs, and especially when you're going against a Rick Carlisle team, and especially when you're going against a zone, which you know George isn't going to be displacing defenders in the same way. He's just not like a visionary passer. He's a good one who's athletic and a good shooter, and so people bend to him, and he can take advantage of that. But if you're not overreacting to him, he's not going to beat you with great assists, you know? Yeah, that's kind of the issue with his team. Like, it's a bunch of guys that are good secondary creators or secondary playmakers, but they need the primary. Like, there's guys on this team that can make reads. Luke Kennard, for example, <laughs> can make reads. No, but really, like, I think I think there's a lot of guys on this team that would be more effective I'm not trolling when I ask you this. I promise. God, I already I know, know what's you, coming. I, already I know. know you hate this question. Yeah. What do you think about Rondo playing more minutes with with the starters? Like not increasing his minutes per se, but just staggering them so that he's on the floor more with with Paul and Kawhi. I mean, if they had started Rondo in Reggie Jackson's place, this series would be over right now. I mean, Reggie. We just talked about how important Reggie Jackson's <laughs> scoring was, but also, also, I mean, it, on just the Rondo respect, point, respect Rondo. Ugh, I would rather not. But on the Rondo point, I mean, Rick, Rick Carlisle certainly did not 
At one point, he had Willie Cauley-Stein guarding Rondo in this game, just daring him, please, do anything. And I, I, I would venture to say no coach in the league is more familiar with Rajon Rondo's limitations than Rick Carlisle is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, his strengths. He was saying that, <laughs> that Rondo was pointing out all of the plays in games one and two um, didn't really matter that much. He's very polite. But... Yeah, it was. It was actually it was a very it was a very dignified answer from from Carlisle because it revealed something about Rondo that was nice, but that we already know. So it wasn't like he was giving Rondo any props. He was just like, "Yeah, this guy knows all the plays. We know that about Rondo. He's genius." Um, the Boban minutes. What are your thoughts? Good. Like, well, let's get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of this. Like, there were a lot of. We we got the full gamut. I thought today. I thought they they came closer to breaking even in this game a little bit versus in game five. I thought they were a pretty big swing just in terms of shifting the matchups and the tactics of the series, putting them in there. This one, the Clippers obviously were more prepared for it, more ready for that. I think to the Mavs credit, what they've done is they've solved kind of the fundamental Boban problem, which is when you put him in a game, everything becomes about Boban. Like on your offense, you want to feed him as much as you can to take advantage of his height. And on defense, the other team is usually going to target him all the time to try to get him out of the game. That's generally how his minutes work. But when you play this kind of zone, it makes it harder to target him, makes it more sustainable for the Mavs. And I think, just as importantly, turns some of your other lesser defenders into pretty adequate ones. Like, if you, Luka Doncic is not a great on-ball man defender. But if you put him at the bottom of a zone where he can use his length and he doesn't have to run around a lot and he can save his energy for offense, he can be a good defensive rebounder and a good challenger on shots. He can do stuff for you. And so the Boban minutes to me are as much about getting stuff like that out of it as they are, you know, him getting putbacks over Nicholas Batum or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like, I think I think they did look better. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. A Boban game does kind of become about Boban. And, Always. you know, as it, as it should, as it should, <laughs> anytime, anytime Boban is involved, he should be the star of the moment. Um, he's, he's the main character. He's, he's the main character. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, so I was surprised uh, that they looked better today. That first quarter, uh, first of all, the Mavs zone just looked better today than, than it did in game five. Um, that makes, that makes sense. Uh, but just just a much better, more active game from Przingis, even though they didn't get a lot from him offensively. Like, I think he just didn't make himself a liability on defense and was just really using his length on help side and stuff. And I think they actually, like, might have found something with that because, like, he was getting exploited. Now they can play Boban. Uh, the Boban playmaking experiment was fun, trying to turn him into a, uh, into a playmaking <laughs> five. Uh you know, he could he could he's a smart guy, but you know, maybe leaning on him a little bit too much. Uh then then when when they switched it and it was KP uh out, out in the perimeter, I think it just looked way better. Cause like then you just you, you get like a seven foot shooting target and a seven foot paint target for Luca, and it just makes everything so much harder. It is interesting that Carlisle's kind of paired them together specifically. Like Porzingis and Boban always play together for Boban's minutes. And then he's been coming in with Maxi Kleba and Dwight Powell together as kind of basically a, a wholesale front court pairing change when those guys come in. I don't really get the Powell Kleba appeal, like what those guys are doing for each other as much. But Boban and Chris Apps work. Like that it's just it's just so overwhelming, that kind of length in certain situations. And especially if your team doesn't have a like knockout dedicated rim protector who's actually really good at that job. The best thing you can do is just put a bunch of length on the floor and kind of fake it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But I also, I, I think that sort of element of it is probably why I think the Clippers should be able to figure it out. Um, like a couple like harder drives and just figuring out the angles. And and they actually did. Um, you know, PG didn't finish some shots that he normally finishes. It was an, It was like a pretty, the officiating, I think, I mean, game seven is not going to be any any tighter but the officiating was was loose which is which is fine but I think that contributed to to helping the zone out a little bit I'm really curious to see how it's going to continue to look um it's just like it's it's always it's always interesting um to see a coach go all in on a lineup like that uh just to kind of try to mess with the other team and like I I feel like they're winning it I feel like they're winning it. Like the more, like, you know, it's to, to offset the Morris thing. I just, I just feel like 
sometimes I, it's all about how they use it. Like sometimes it's like, do we really need to set up Boban? Um, you know, he's kind of, he's two for nine. I don't know. Uh, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm super curious to see how that works in a game seven. I, I just think it's really interesting. Um, but yeah. And the other thing, the other thing, like, I feel like there was, there were some interesting tactics uh, used today. Like you got the Willie Cauley Stein thing, which I we yep. we should have gotten more of that. We should have gotten more of that. We only got a few possessions, and I think all we really got in terms of action was like a missed Rondo layup, right? Well, I mean, so if they if the Clippers were to start Rondo, you would have to start Willie Cauley Stein to counter him, right? Yeah, I think it's a natural matchup. Yeah, wingspan to wingspan. <laughs> the Clippers didn't let Luca shoot threes late in the fourth. He helped them out a little bit too. I, I, there was a point in this game where it seemed like Luca kind of went a little too hard depending on either trying to bait fouls, which is part mm-hmm. of his game. Sometimes that's going to be there. Sometimes it's it's not going to work out as well. And then just kind of like the Luca magic, hyper-difficult turnaround shots, yeah. which as the game went on, just kind of got worse and worse. I, I don't, I don't, you know, don't want to speculate too much about his injury, but just with any injury in general, prolonged use, deeper into a game, especially for a guy who's handling and doing as much as he is, you just start to feel it more. You start to feel the nag and the limitation of your injury more. I wouldn't be surprised if some of that neck shoulder injury that he's dealing with started to pull on him a little bit more deep into this game, just like it seemed to do with the last one. You know, we can argue about the causalities of all that, but I think the reality is he just was not there offensively in a way that basically if if he's not creating at a super high level, the Mavs are going to lose those quarters. And if they lose enough of those stretches and quarters, they lose these games pretty much by default. Yeah, I really feel like they could use a secondary playmaker this offseason. That's kind of what I feel like we've... I mean, I, I guess we've known it, but I think we've really learned that about them this season. Um, even though, you know, they tried they tried to move the ball around, and I actually think they were reasonably prepared for what the Clippers were going to do. They honestly just didn't hit a lot of shots. Um, and that's that's kind of why I picked... I picked the Mavs in seven yesterday just because I thought that it would be difficult for them to avoid two crazy Luka nights in a row or two crazy Dallas Mavericks shooting nights in a row. Um, now they only, now it's just one. Now it's just one. So game seven. Well, first, actually, let me ask you this. Do you have anything else on this? No, no, we can go to game seven. You sure? You don't have like an amazing nugget? <laughs> Did, have I had any amazing nuggets? Rob, you're full of amazing nuggets. Wow, thank you. Yeah, you're you're like a McDonald's Happy Meal. I'm I'm a Luke Kennard over here, just giving you ten good minutes <laughs> in one basket, you know. <laughs> so, game seven. Yeah. Do you think Kawhi can be the best player on the floor again? Yeah, Kawhi can be the best player on the floor in any game he plays in at any time. He he's been getting a lot of weird flack since game five. In a way, I didn't quite understand. He's one of the best players in the world. Like, he can dial in defensively pretty much in any game and take it over. He can be the best offensive player on the floor in any game. I don't really get what's not to like other than the fact that Luka has had an otherworldly series. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think some of that was just not seeing him do it. Like, I like that he was on, you know, they're switching less. They're still hedging. Um, but keeping him on Luka, I think probably helped wear him down throughout the game it still wasn't like you know I think the game plan is at this point is probably the game plan you just see if they're gonna miss shots and I think that's I think that's fine and you don't let Luca get off um but yeah I just I think I think I was personally waiting for a performance like this I think we got a little bit of it in in game four um but at the same time like it just I'd like to see a little bit more of, of that consistency from him because he can pull it out of his bag. And maybe it's some maybe it's just a case of he didn't want to do it this early. Um, and now he maybe realizes he has to. I definitely, you know, like the, the Clippers misunderestimated the Mavs. Like there's no question about that. They wanted him. Regardless of the results of this series, I will never understand why you will why you would ask for for Luka Doncic in a moment when you have you have also like, you know communicated to him that you think that he's not going to beat you um I get that we don't really think about the psychological aspect of the game that much but I don't know just doesn't seem like a great call there uh that said it's one more game 
don't really know what's going to happen next. Speaking of emotions and all the psychological stuff, Luca, Luca, we saw it a little bit today. This is his first game seven ever. Yeah, he's obviously played in championship scenarios. Uh, he's won a Euroleague final. He's hit all kinds of crazy shots. Like he's, I'm not worried about him in the clutch, but I do think that, you know, Game Seven is a very specific type of environment. I don't think that it can actually be like really explained or felt until you're in it. At least based on like what people who have actually experienced him have said, it it's not exactly a Mavs or Clippers, I guess, style game. But I think the Clippers might actually be more suited to like the the nerves aspect of it. Um, and also just have more physical guys on their team. Like where if it does just become one of those games where like, you're going to have to grind it out. I kind of, I favor the Clippers if it, if it turns into that type of game and there's just more, there's more guys that have been there. Um, I don't know. I'm curious. I'm curious for, I'm curious and excited for game seven, Luca. It should be awesome to see. And, and- in terms of judging, especially the stars against each other, like who's going to show up and really play at a really high level between Luca and Kawhi and Paul George, that's where we get into what we were just kind of talking about with Kawhi, which is, I think he can be the best player on the floor in any game, but he can't be the best player on the floor necessarily in every game. There is a little bit of that, when is he going to turn it on factor with him? And game sevens, he turns it on. Elimination games, he turns it on. And that doesn't always mean super high efficiency, but it may mean late in this game, in a, in a game seven scenario, taking the shots when other players don't want to, when everyone else is feeling the spotlight a little bit more, like that is a dude who is not afraid to go 12 for 30 if it means getting his team the best possible shots. And so that's going to be the mirror question with Luca is when you get late into that game and if he has a similar kind of arc to his performance where he hasn't been hitting shots in the second half as effectively, is he going to be passing out of stuff? Is he going to be reading the same way? Is Luca going to be on top of the action of the game in the way you have to be to close something out on the road against a team as good as the Clippers. I mean, I have faith that he is that kind of gamer, that he that he has that in him. But you're right, and the 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 environment of a game seven emotionally is a very charged thing. And we we kind of just have to see it a little bit. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. What did you think of he had a strange game. He had a strange game. What did you think? Luca? Yeah. I thought the Clippers did a better job in general of kind of reading where he wanted to go. And some of that had to do with the passing as much as anything. Like his his initial targets and some of the stuff that was open for him earlier in the series, they were able to cut off pretty effectively. And then I thought they also were reading really well when he wanted to set up Boban. And so like, you know, even, even with Boban shooting, okay, you know, he, a lot of those were like kind of taps to himself off the glass. I don't think it was actually as bad as 5 of 13. But I haven't gone back and looked at, looked at it, but I would guess that at least a couple of Lucas' three turnovers were trying to feed to him over the top and either resulting in a Boban offensive foul or going out of bounds or the, or the, the Clippers picking it off. He has to be able to read some of those situational uh, cases a little bit better, a little bit sharper, because that's the, that's the adaptation of a series. You know, to start it out, he was one step out of everything the Clippers wanted to do defensively. I feel like they haven't caught up to him. You don't catch up to a player like Luca, but they've they've narrowed the gap between the amazing plays he wants to make and can make, and the things that they can take away from him and force to be a little more difficult. Yeah, I don't think I I don't think I saw him get a lot of easy shots today at all. No. Like he wasn't he wasn't getting to the rim. I mean, he was hardly even getting the shots that he likes to get. You know, in the perimeter area. Um, yeah, I. I I'm a little watching him in that second half, getting frustrated with the refs, getting frustrated with coverages. I think there's a moment where he yelled at Willie Cauley Stein. But who among us hasn't, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Have you yelled at Willie Cauley Stein? Not lately, but I mean, if I were Luca, yeah. I would understand it. And I mean, the other thing too, uh, look, all, all of this wrapped up in the fact that he put up 29, 11, and 8 in this game. He was pretty great by anyone else's standards. The reality is he put up that line and they lost in a game where their defense was good enough. And that's just kind of where the Mavs rotation is right now offensively. Like you may get a good game from Tim Hardaway Jr. You may not. Mm -hmm. You may get a good game from Jalen Brunson. You may not. Luka is in a place where he kind of has to score 40 and have a great passing game and be on top of everything in terms of maintaining and running the offense for them to win. He can do that. But mm -hmm. man, game seven, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, all right. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Rob, thank you so much for thank joining you, me. I'm so I'm I'm 
and just enthused that we got to do a podcast together. It's a beautiful thing. I think this is maybe our first podcast together ever. <gasps> do you think it is? I think it's got to be. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was really nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm really, I, really, I really hope that we can, you know, get to actually, like, maybe do this in real life one day. Mm, I mean, you know, we, got a, we got a long way to go on that. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to find a, I'm going to find your Mavericks book before game seven. Um, anybody who doesn't know, uh, Rob wrote a book about the 2011 Mavericks. Uh, Ten year anniversary is coming up. If. If the Mavs win game seven, he's actually promised me that he will do a 10-year anniversary book tour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So get your tickets for that. Buy the book. And hey, good good luck with the rest of the tour. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's a lot of stops in the Midwest, but this time of year, that's great. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, we've got Chris Ryan and myself talking about Suns Nuggets. A little bit of Trey versus Ben Simmons over on The Answer. So uh, stick around after the break. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add on to your meal. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. All right, we're back. Sirit, what's up? Congratulations to Luca or Kawhi. Uh, depending on what just happened in that game. But we are here to talk. Very happy for either of those people. Either one of them. We're here to talk mm-hmm. about... Uh, Great people on both sides. Okay, sorry. You can go You can go now. <laughs> We're here to talk about uh, a theme that's emerging from this from this postseason because, you know, the image that I'm going to take with me, it's kind of a combination of images, but like the sort of sequence that I'm going to take with me from that Lakers-Suns series is definitely the uh, verve with which... Devin Booker finished the game, and especially his his two handed dunk towards in the closing seconds of of that final game against the Lakers, and the kind of flat line that LeBron finished on, where he's obviously just like completely exhausted and tapped out. But I don't want to take too much from that because if Anthony Davis plays, who knows what kind of conversation we're having. But I do think it's pretty kind of fascinating of an image to this this idea of like the kind of the page turning, the league kind of changing hands a little bit, maybe like this youth movement coming in. Do you think that that's an overstatement to like draw that much of a conclusion out of a, a, a series that was so affected by injury? No, it really feels like the changing of the guard. Like it's not just Booker. I feel like this whole playoffs is just going to feature guys that we haven't really gotten to know very well, and they're playing each other, which is super exciting. Yeah, I think I. I it's very sad. It's very sad for me. Like any any time you start to notice the passage of time, like I think at the start of the game. Booker was walking by LeBron and LeBron, you, you've been able to see the grays in his beards for a yeah. while now, but it just felt a little bit different because like you just didn't know what LeBron you were going to get. Like they just they just symbolized more. And he's he's just youthful with his rosy cheeks, just ready to go. Um, yeah, it really 
it feels like something is changing in these playoffs. You see it with Kawhi versus Luka. We're going to talk Ben versus Trey coming right. up. And, you know, we got, we've got we got the Suns versus the Nuggets, too. And that's, I don't know. Let's just jump in. Yeah, let's do it right now. So I think that one of the more fascinating parts about all this is uh, how much of the talent remaining in the postseason is uh, are playing for the teams that drafted them? Or at least they have been with those teams since they were in their, like, early in their careers. There's with some, like, you know, trades that go on right around there at the beginning of their careers. But I think it's kind of neat. I mean, like, we've spent so much lung capacity talking about player empowerment and star movement and blockbuster trades and free agency. And that's the way to get to a championship fastest. And obviously that still is a really viable, all those are really viable paths, but it's kind of awesome as a Sixers fan to see Embiid and Simmons get into the second round or at least one of them. Uh, and then watching the Hawks, watching the nuggets, watching the jazz and watching the Suns propel themselves like largely off the play of, of guys they got, in 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 the draft with with obviously some assistance from people like Chris Paul or people like you know uh Austin Rivers in the case of the Nuggets what do you think of this sort of uh are are we seeing kind of like a a return to the draft as like a championship building mechanism uh yeah i think it's 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 really interesting right because I find that the whole small market thing can sometimes be used as an excuse by not great franchises for why they're not doing that well. Um, and if you look at what's happening right now, you kind of have you have a lot of different examples of, of team building. You know, with Denver, they've done things in a really interesting way. First of all, drafting Jokic, recognizing I think the thing that Denver does is that they recognize guys that don't necessarily look like they'd be great at playing basketball but end up mm-hmm. being really great at playing basketball I think they've you know I think they keyed into something with with small guards too um you know getting Composo, Marcus Howard seeing how those guys would fare when a lot of guys a lot of a lot of teams wouldn't look at them because they're height um you know they've they've gone after guys that don't necessarily have not just Jokic right like you know there's they they took Willie Hernan Gomez to like you know really like turn him into a project and then he ended up flipping him but they definitely seem to find value later in the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamal Murray was another guy that was kind of a question in terms of you know is he a combo guard or not, and then you know you look at you look at a team like Utah. I think the t- the thing that they have in common is that they've developed their players really well. But I actually well now that I think about it, I think Denver and and the Suns might be a better comparison to each other because the Suns haven't necessarily always drafted the way that you'd expect them to draft to. Right. Even if you look back at Devin Booker, um, coming out of Kentucky, well, first of all, I just, I like when guys go to Kentucky. Um, I do too. I just think there's something to you wanting the smoke. You just saying like, yeah, I'm going to come in and be like a semi-professional person instead of being a college student. I want 20,000 fans. I want Cal. I want Kenny Payne. Um, and and I, I find that for the most part, like the the top end Kentucky guys end up showing more than they end, than they do uh, when they're at Kentucky. Uh, so, you know, Devin Booker was not exactly the guy that you would have seen being like the best player in that draft. And I think that, you know, Cam Johnson wasn't really one of those picks either. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And, you know, you see it this year with Jalen Smith, too. Like, the Suns kind of don't really care where they draft, it seems like. Um, which I, I I don't think, you know, I think there, there's some edges that they miss out on and stuff. But I think, like, those are two teams that really trusted their gut in terms of de- development. Yeah. Um, And they've done a, a, a pretty good job of it. But the other end of it is that, like, you know, you don't see it very often because it takes time. You know, Ryan McDonough was the guy who drafted Devin Booker. Yeah. Mikhail Bridges, DeAndre Ayton, which, you know, like you can always, if we want to look back at the DeAndre Ayton pick, like, yes. They would have rather um, had Luka, yes. Of right. course, or Trey, like, yeah. But at the same time, you know, Ayton's looking really, really good right now, too. Yeah. So, you know, trusting their development, but, you know, for any any small market teams, like, Hire the right people, and if you want long-term results, then think long-term. You know, like, keep guys around. So much of it is luck. So much of it Mm -hmm. is that really precise moment where you have to kind of start drafting not just for best player available, but for fit and for what this guy might be able to do for us in the postseason. I think of somebody like Bridges like that, who's, like, obviously a player that was briefly a sixer, but, like, 
feels like a dude who you would just be like, I, I would love five of these guys in the playoffs. You know what I mean? Like, it just feels like he's never going to make a ma- massive mistake. He can pick up really uh, like a serious defensive responsibility in each series. He can knock down a couple of threes when you really need it. He did that against the Lakers in, in game six. And that's a pick where you're like, it, it doesn't set the world on fire. It's like a guy who's been at Nova for a little while, but like he comes in and he's just like immediately, seemingly like immediately ready to start playing well and comes out of the bubble and into this season and is like, like kind of like, you're like, oh, this guy's just like an immediate playoff rotation player. Um, and Cam Johnson has become that too. So it's pretty fascinating to watch them sort of draft people that you wouldn't necessarily write a letter about like their, their pure potential but like they have like this real usefulness on a playoff team, which is obviously what the Sun saw themselves as. Yeah, I think it's I, th- I think it's super fascinating to see through the draft like how different teams value things as well. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I just wrote a I just wrote a piece about Memphis, and one of the things that they kind of did that's similar to what the Suns have done, and why I think Memphis probably had success earlier in the playoffs than than they should have, is the fact that like they drafted guys that spent some time in college and also like played a lot of different roles seem like they would be okay playing a lot of different roles which i think like is a really good really important projector for for what you do in the future um and they also you know just like went for went for stockier guys went for bigger guys uh just like valued intelligence more than i think a lot of other other things it's interesting to kind of watch um in a way that you don't necessarily with some of these teams that are put together. Uh, like you look at the Warriors, for example, as a team that was that was built through the draft. Like they kind of they had this identity built around Clay and Steph Curry shooting and then like the intelligence of Draymond. Well, you know, they didn't they didn't draft Steph, but like that is an ethos that's that's built into what the organization is, right? Mm-hmm. But that takes time. And I think you see you see a version of it in Milwaukee where you know they're they're very defensive minded and you kind of you, you see I, like what would you say is the one team that I think has actually done a good job of diversifying a lot of the guys that it's got that it's brought on and developing at the same time is Utah like I think Utah is one of those teams where they actually have a bunch of guys that are different yeah yeah and they also I mean I think so Utah kind of reminds me a little bit of of what Philly did where they've had I wouldn't say like a ton of turnover since Donovan's popped, but like uh, uh, they've brought in a fair amount of guys from Conley to the people that they sort of surround surround those dudes with, like Bogdanovich. And the same thing sort of has happened with Philly with with Ben and Joel, where they've seen like ten or eleven different supporting players come through in like whatever like the last four seasons. So. I think that when you initially like that, you might look at that and say like, well, that's just like a lot of chaos and a lot of turnover, but it's kind of cool to like establish your base two guys, your base three guys, Mm -hmm. whoever it's going to be. And then be like, all the other pieces can change. The style can change. We can find the style that suits the two of them, whatever it is. We can find the right coach, whoever it is. And then, and then like they will lead us to the promised land rather than, you know, ever getting too freaked out. And then this is why I'm glad the Sixers never traded Simmons is like, if they had broken from that, like you wouldn't get to see what you're about to see now, whether or not they're going to beat the Hawks is another question. But I think that it's actually like going through all of that together has like made them a little bit more of a solid pair. And I think it's also worked for Gobert and Mitchell, even if they haven't always liked each other that much. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of interesting, like the the Simmons point, especially because, you know, the same that was that was one of those picks like looking at Philly is really interesting because after Hinky they kind of went completely the opposite direction of the direction they had been going in which i think is the reason why the team was really really lopsided and weird for a while and now they're kind of you know just i, I don't know i don't want to say like just cuz Maury's there they're going back in like the process oriented direction like they're trying to win a championship that's not a you know they're not <laughs> at that stage anymore um, but I think that it kind of like gave them an odd logic for a while, which is all, which is why we've had, I think, like so many questions about Ben Simmons mm-hmm. and we're going to we're going to turn things over to you. How the turntables have turned, Chris Ryan. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about your number one boy. OK, Ben Simmons. Yeah. Um, so ben, first of all, I want to start this off by saying that, like, I think I think Ben Simmons is probably we're talking about young players today, right? The cool thing about young players, 
is all we care about is their potential and look how great their future is going to be in the league. And here are all of these things that he he can do, right? Yes, yes. Uh, with Simmons, it's kind of always been the opposite story. I think it's for a number of reasons. Like, first of all, he made the playoffs in his rookie year. And, and when you get to the playoffs as a young player, you get exposed, right? Like, that's just kind of the natural thing that happens. And it doesn't take a genius to realize that Ben's lack of a jump shot was getting exposed. And there's, you know, there's a number of things that are on him there. You know, I think there's a lack of improvement, a lack of willingness that that is part of it. But more than anything else, I just think that he's a guy that we focus way too much on the things that he can't do uh, as opposed to the things he can do. That said, <laughs> once again, <laughs> once again, Ben Simmons has been put in a position where <laughs> we are going to be discussing what his limitations are because he's he's now probably likely, I guess this is where we can start, he's probably going to be playing without Embiid. Uh, for at least the start of the Hawks series. Yeah, this is so weird. I don't really know what, like, you and I were chatting about this earlier. I don't, I, I have no idea what the deal is. Like, if Embiid is breaking case of emergency, if he's like, I need a week off, but I can come back for game three, if he's going to need three weeks off and he can come back for the conference finals, if it's just swelling, if they're worried about something more happening. I, it's, it's one of these, there was like a delay in the MRI, like, the MRI like results took a full day to come out. Like I, 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 this is, this is like start serial season four about this, this one for me. Cause I don't, I don't even know. Yeah. It's difficult to say how much do you think this is just them not wanting to give the Hawks a hint on, on what they're doing? Because oh, I'm sure that they have like their plan. Like, I'm sure they're just mm -hmm. like, whatever, like we just don't want to necessarily make, like let the Hawks know whether or not to expect him in game two or not. I, I have to imagine that the Sixers know like they have like a blueprint because I actually think it does make a difference between finding out they're like right before the game that he, he can't go versus like going into it, knowing it's going to be Ben and four out. And then it's going to be like Dwight and whoever you're going to be rotating in. And that's going to be the, the mix for the game. I do think it makes a little bit of a difference. Seems to make a difference for Simmons too. Yeah. I mean, no question. Right. Like I think it's, I think it makes a difference for both sides, right? Like probably a little bit more for the Hawks, but that's, what's so fascinating about this. The, the Sixers, I think are going to have to play a completely different style without Embiid. Um, and it is a very, it is the style that, that Ben Simmons fans have been saying needs to be played five out. Benny play and defense, the Jets. Probably right. switch. Yeah. You know, <laughs> run him out of the gym. So Chris, first of all, I didn't know you were a Ben truther. I'm, I'm a bit of a Ben truther myself, or I don't know where I am on the Ben Simmons scale. I'm not anti though. Mm -hmm. Where, tell me, give me your best case for Ben Simmons. Like best case in this series or best case just in his life in general? Like best case in his career? Because his best case in his career is probably that he is not the right second star for playing with Embiid. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of advanced metrics that will prove that suggest that it's not a matter of those two guys. It's a matter of their supporting cast. But I do think that like Simmons's particular gifts to me would be best utilized in a way that we might actually see against the Hawks, which is Ben with a collection of other playmakers and shooters around him. I, on offense, he's the primary playmaker, and on defense, he's essentially playing the five. Um, so it's like, essentially, it's essentially like a, a Draymond role. You know what I mean? Where it's like, he's not expected to score from the perimeter. He can drive downhill, he can kick out, he can set up other guys, and you want to get them into transition. He didn't really have a ton of transition opportunities in that Wizards. That Wizards series was such a rock fight. You're talking about his like, his negatives. I think that the issue, the thing that's so awesome about the NBA postseason is that it really does put a microscope on any flaws in people's game. And the reason why I was kind of blown away by what Trey Young was doing against the Knicks was because they were actually like asking questions of him that I thought he wouldn't be able to answer. I thought if he got blitzed by big guys out at like midcourt, he might not be able to get out of the the double team. I thought he might not make the smart skip pass all the time. Like I didn't know if he would respond to playing well in that kind of environment at MSG because it gets pretty quiet in Atlanta, you know, and during basketball games, like I didn't know. And then, so it's kind of neat to see him respond in that way with Simmons. I think that we kind of got like hung up a little bit on like the free throw practice footage and definitely his missed free throws and, and his percentage. I thought doc handled that great. I think he was just like, I want him to shoot even more free throws and I'll take a point per possession 
if he's at the line. Like, I, it's that's fine with me. It sucks when it happens in the last five minutes. But I think we're about to see, like, the Sixers were fine without Embiid. And they played a pretty cupcake schedule, but they were pretty good, like, during that, that last stretch when Embiid was out in the regular season. They're really good at home. Simmons is an elite defender. And I, I, I actually am not as, like, nervous about this as I think I might have been a year ago. Okay, so what's the formula? How are we... For, let's start with Trey. How is he defending Trey? Or how are the Sixers defending Trey? <sighs> you tell me. Because I, I, I saw... <laughs> no, because I saw a really, like... Uh, it's weird to watch Tibbs not under not know how to do it. You know what I mean? And I think that they they didn't like blitz him that much, but when they I mean, did they blitz him that much? But when they did blitz him, he was either splitting it or passing out really well. Yeah, I mean, I don't. We didn't see a lot of it. I, they played the pick and roll like pretty straight up and just tried to have Bullock fight over for the most part. Bullock was, I think, Bullock was like pretty much his primary defender throughout the series, and it didn't really didn't, didn't work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think the Sixers can switch a lot more. I think they have more defenders they can throw at him. That includes Ben Simmons, Thibault, a little bit of Danny Green, even a little bit of Seth Curry. Uh, quicker guys, guys that can get around screens if you need to do that, or also guys that can just pick you up coming off the switch. Uh, but it's this is kind of where I think you miss Embiid. Like, what do you do about Clint Capella when you switch? He's the league's best offensive rebounder, and he's really great on the slip and just at manipulating what the space that he should be in when you know you try to take away some stuff from a guy like Trey yeah and it's I guess the question is it's like if this is all about adjustments like when does Doc get scared of watching Capella feast on a smaller Sixers lineup if he is and when does he start reverting to like putting Dwight in for extended periods of time that I don't think anybody really wants to see. Does Dwight start? No, I don't think Dwight will start, but I think Dwight will come in in like the first quarter and start playing. Like, I don't I don't think he'll go away from the lineup that he ended the Wizards series with. But I do think that like, I do think that there will be a point where like, if there's a lot of Capella flushes, like he's going to get a little nervous about that. I kind of wish mm-hmm. that the Sixers had a third center for this exact reason. Um, but that's, that's too late now. Um, I think that, do you think that in terms of just like what's on the line, like it seems like Trey Young is now playing with like house money. Like this is actually like a series that will, if were the Sixers to lose, be more embarrassing for Simmons than it would be if the Hawks lost for Trey Young. Because Trey Young is like almost ahead of schedule somehow now. So the last the last two weeks for Trey Young have just been the ultimate vindication for for everything. It's such that- a such a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's also just really exciting. I love that he's embracing the villain role and you know, he's just he's kind of an impossible cover when he's hitting his shots. I'm really excited to see him interact with the Philly crowd. And I also think that like he presents a really interesting challenge for for Ben as well. Like they're they're pretty they're kind of polar opposites actually now that you think of it oddly you've both like been brought up in the point guard position neither of them really represent what your idea of a point guard is anymore because like aside from Chris Paul no one really represents that anymore but they're kind of like they're their polar ends of it and in this like very strange NBA you're probably gonna have 6'9 Ben Simmons who has all the athleticism in the world and the defensive instincts in the world to to be able to try to hold hold off Trey Young, who is like a six foot beanpole, and you're, I mean, look, like here's a positive for you: you're going to get a ton of cross matches. I think Simmons in the post can really do some stuff in this series. I think they're going to have to play him a lot, a lot in there. Um, but it's just, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I think it'll be like an interesting philosophical series. I think it'll be an interesting series, like from from the standpoint of all these sort of different different positional inversions and also just like Ben versus Trey like you know that's if Ben gets up for this and this goes like six or seven and I think that's always the question like how much and how how, for how long is Ben going to get up for this because he's going to have to rebound he's going to have to make plays he's going to have to defend he's going to have to set screens like he's going to have to do a little bit of everything like he's going to have to kind of be Draymond plus like we've talked before about how Ben's kind of ideal role would have been to be in a Draymond Green situation where he is just doing all that stuff and we're not really worried too much about the scoring. Like, if he scores, it's kind of like a bonus. He's a number one pick and, like, there's all this hype behind him. And there is also an expectation, I think, from the Sixers that that, that he 
do a little bit of that at least. I mean, like they've paid him uh, a ton of money and it's going to be really interesting to see, like, can we get like 18 points per game, triple, double Ben? Like, I don't know. Can we get him like three or four times in this series? Right. I think if, if you can, I mean, the he's can averaging that. He's, he's yeah. practically averaging that in the postseason. I mean, this is statistically he's for as much as he took like some, some shots in that. I mean, shots like from the media, not shots on the floor, unfortunately for the shots he took in the, the Washington series. He's having like a pretty good numbers wise postseason so far. If he, t- if he, if you give me those numbers against Atlanta, I would, I would, I would definitely take them. Just last thing on on the Ben point. Do you think people overreacted to the game four performance? Yes. Yes, definitely. And I think also like if you have something like they were doing it to Giannis too, like the free throw thing is just like if you can get like footage, like now they're doing it with Giannis with the amount of time it takes for him to shoot it. With Ben, they were doing like the pregame footage of him working out with Sam Cassell, like which was just Sam Cassell watching him shoot basically. But I think that the free throw has become like this like weird pressure point where you can just be like well we have good like isolated footage of this person doing this so like we could just like make fun of them missing um but yeah like i thought like it was a little bit of an overreaction to basically like a game four loss essentially yeah i felt like as soon as they figured out like okay we need to try a few different lineups like i'm kind of curious what you think of of playoff doc so far i'm i'm very into it i I have no doubt that at some point like I will like start banging my head against the wall because it feels like he's being like really stubborn because that's what everybody who's ever had a Doc Rivers coach team has said is like at some point he will just keep trusting guys that you're like, please stop trusting this guy. But right now, I thought he did an amazing job of just being like, if you guys think that Ben Simmons is a liability, then either you or I don't know anything about basketball. And that was like, I thought that did a really good job of just like, A, he's my guy, B, we put a like a period at the end of the sentence and then like his reaction to the free throw stuff I thought was great. I thought his reaction to handling the Embiid stuff where it's just like, this isn't a cataclysm where we're going to all go into mourning about this. It's like injuries happen. We'll keep it moving. I've been through a lot of playoffs. Mm-hmm. This is going to be like a postseason of attrition. We've already lost like Paul Doncic, like Davis Embiid. like we've had so many like significant injuries to like big players right now. We lost Davis and did, like the Lakers lost because of that. It just feels like one of those postseasons where we'll look back in five or six years and be like, oh yeah, that was the that was the year that Davis hurt his groin, right? Yeah, right. Okay, right. Because I was like, you 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 do that a lot with like Spurs teams, I feel like, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. When Tony Parker blew his quadriceps out, right? Yeah. When all the Suns got suspended. That's right. Um, what's the Never next forget. other than Trey and Ben, we can wrap up by talking about like, I'm curious, what's your next most anticipated young player duel uh in in among the, post- the teams that might match up in the postseason gosh luca luca versus either Jokic or booker i mean we haven't talked enough about Jokic versus booker yeah um let's do that let's talk about Jokic. Or yeah booker. yeah that's a series that i think is going to be really interesting we talked about it a little bit yesterday uh but it's i think it's just really going to come down to how much does Jokic have to give at this juncture, like he's played every game this this season, which is not a thing that any superstar has done. Um, he's done it while being MVP and like really keeping Denver together through through all these injuries they've had. He's kind of just like I called him a vacuum yesterday for <laughs> for all the lost offense that, that they have. He just kind of he just filters it in and just finds a new place to to put it. He's like, oh, okay, Jamal Murray's out. Here's ten points for you, Michael Porter Jr. Here's ten <laughs> points for you, Monte Morris. Um, I don't know how much longer he can do that for. And also, I think that like the the Nuggets have to get really hot. But I think, man, like you just have two guys that they can get hot at any time, and I don't think that there's an appropriate cover on either the other teams on that, no that can guard them like at all. like who's definitely gonna, not for denver at least who's at gonna least pick the sons up have eight. yeah no one like yeah like is it like my michael porter jr like he's who is figuring it out a little bit but like not not devin booker who just smoked the lakers and like you know just didn't care that schroeder was on him didn't care that caruso was on him I think honestly, like you're gonna have to try Monte Morris a couple times. Like you really, I mean, you miss Gary Harris here. Like you knew that they were gonna eventually miss Gary Harris, and I think they're gonna they're gonna miss him in this series. Jamal would have obviously been fantastic to have, but I just I, I think it's gonna be the Suns. Do you think? Do you um, think Gordon will 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 t- pick Booker up at all? I've been thinking about this, and I think Booker is a little too quick for him. Yeah. Um, I think he can do a good job against Chris Paul, actually. I think he might be one of the few guys that could kind of like close the gaps on the space that he creates while also mm-hmm. being able to stay in front. 
and we're gonna like speaking of attrition we're gonna kind of have to see where how chris paul is feeling too uh but that's that's pretty much it and i think i think eventually that's something that chris paul would suss out as well like i, I really think you need quickness to beat these Suns, and like the fact that the lakers with their you know double triple point guard headed lineups couldn't do it um i don't think that i don't think that denver is really going to be the team either but that's gonna be a fun one well, I, I'm really excited to see that. Like, yeah, I, I, I obviously we're t- we're recording this before the Clippers Mavericks game six, so we don't know what happened with that. But obviously, like a Luca versus either of those guys in the next round would be great. But he has to go through. He would have to get through Gobert and Mitchell first anyway. I mean, that's it's funny. It's like I saw a bunch of people tweeting. Not that this really matters, but like, oh, woe is the NBA because there's no. No LeBron, no Steph in the Western Conference now. And even Lillard Lillard was like at least a name. And now we've mm-hmm. got all these like no names. I'm like, you're, you're about to like mint like f- four new stars. Like you're about to like introduce Mitchell Jokic uh, and Booker and either and maybe Luka to like the whole wide world who are going to be like, OK, I'm going to watch the Western Conference semifinals. Yeah, and ultimately, like, this is what you need, too. And, like, a lot of these guys came out with a lot of hype out of college. Like, Trey's a draw. Yeah. And, like, yeah. you're not losing You're not losing by getting Trey Young in the second round, especially playing a big market like Philly. Like, whether Embiid's out or not, like, that's going to be a series. And him going, you thought he went back and forth with Madison Square Garden fans? Oh, my gosh, Philly's going to be insane. Like, that's just... That's that's in that's incredible television. Devin Booker versus Jokic is going to be incredible television. Devin Booker is just incredible television. Like anybody that's been missing like these smooth silky wings that have been able to been able to score like any old school fan of the NBA like dude Devin Booker is your guy. You just like this is kind of where the NBA has failed a little bit. And I don't want to say the NBA like we always talk about you know, like, why aren't these young guys being marketed enough, yeah. right? Like, it's it's, it's a yeah. little bit of everything, right? Yeah. You can yeah. you can blame the NBA. You can blame, like, the way media is now. Well, according there's to you, there's, like, a whole generation of people sitting out there being like, I'm not coming back until I get a smooth, silky wing. You know, I've been waiting for silky wings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like people, people are always saying, people are always saying, I miss, I miss smooth, silky wings. In the can NBA. I ask you wh- one last question? We did not mention the Brooklyn Nets this entire time. Mm-hmm. The Brooklyn Nets are a super team. The Brooklyn Nets are, I, I think, mid-old. They're not old, but like they've got guys who have been around for a while. And, you know, like they are. They're uh, older than cre- the guys that we've been talking about. Today. Yes. And they are a creation of free agency. And they are obviously like, you know, a supernova of an offensive team. Um, Were Brooklyn to proceed to the title or at least like, you know, dispatch the Bucks and then dispatch, like at least get to the finals. Does this sort of negate anything that we've just been talking about? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, not every franchise can go out and do what Brooklyn did. Like to say that they would have gotten KD and Kyrie based on like this excellent culture that they built, and you know, went and pretty quickly dismantled. Um, I think that would be a little bit pie in the sky. The fact that they're New York obviously matters, but at the same time, like I just, I just think that. The franchise thing, you have to make it work for you. Like there mm-hmm. are certain franchises that I think all like NBA players are always going to be a little bit sour on, right? Like, but I don't think that's the majority of them. I think like, okay, we're gonna see, we're gonna see this, right? Like this is this this has already started to happen with the Suns. Um, suddenly the Suns are gonna feel like an attractive market, right? For sure. And then if if they actually manage to carry this Chris Paul thing, this. The goal of the Chris Paul era should not be necessarily to win a championship, although now they're actually in a position where they might. Um, it should be to turn the Suns into a destination to say, hey, right. look, this is a place where you can win. And by the way, like it's really great to live here from November to May every year, right? Um, they're trying to do that. And I think that there's been some mild success on that level. Even just Chris Paul's arrival there is, is is a little bit of proof of that. It's a place that a lot of NBA players spend a chunk of time in the offseason, just like Atlanta, just like Miami, just mm-hmm. like Houston. And there's like there's so many, there's so many of these teams that live in like this nebulous space where they aren't really that defined up until the fact that They've be, either either they are so decrepit that they're called a small market, like Phoenix has been for for so long, or they figure their stuff out and all of a sudden they become a big market. Like Miami is a great example of this. Miami's an sure. attractive market. It's not a big market. Um, the Bay Area is like kind of giant cultural significance, like you know, it's, it's growth and its cultural significance, and also just its growth in general lined up with the Warriors 
winning championships pretty well, but you saw some of that discourse change. I remember in Toronto, it went from like, um, like, you know, like, you know, the cosmopolitan capital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Right. yeah right. exactly. Like international hub, which by the way, like, it totally is. It's sure. A just the same city. way Philly is like, like the sixth borough of New York, you know, and it's just, like it's a great place to commute from. <laughs> just while while we're here, just so everyone knows, it is a great place. Um, <laughs> but you don't hear that until they have success. Right. All of which is to say, I think if you're a mid-level franchise, you have a lot more say in how you're defined if you don't necessarily fall into the small market trap keep that in mind new orleans you know it's, it's like worth it's worth remembering especially as we go into the free agency and into the off season we'll talk about this a lot more in terms of market size sarah thank you so much uh thank you so much for all of your thoughts on the clippers and the mavericks which I, i'm excited to listen to thanks to sarah we'll be back next friday we are produced as always by isaiah Blake.